This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Hello, Candy. Hey, Ashley. Good to see you again. I know. It feels like just five minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) Well, are you ready to dive back in? I am, yes. Okay. Everyone may remember that we are in the midst of a two-part episode. The focus of our episodes is on actors who died or suffered fatal injuries literally during filming while the cameras were rolling. But our last episode dug into the tragic story of Brandon Lee's death. And today, Ashley and I are back to discuss two more incidents that occurred um, involving people in this situation. And I have no guesses of this one. Well, and I think I'm going to get you on this one. Because we laughed last time, Ashley had said, don't tell me who it is. And then same breath. It's Brandon Lee, right? (laughs) (laughs) I guessed who it was. Immediately. Don't tell me because I will guess. (laughs) That's true. I don't think you would guess this one. I think this one may take you by surprise. Well, my okay, if I was going to guess, I would say Steve Irwin. Okay, so it's a great guess because he will be the second Ah, story that we discuss. I miss Steve. But the one right now is actually related to the Twilight Zone in some way. Ooh. Okay. So, Ashley, what kind of background do you have, background knowledge do you have about the Twilight Zone, whether the original or Twilight Zone, the movie that came out in the 80s. None for the movie that came out in the 80s. Uh, the original, I know very little about because I was more a fan of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Mm. So I don't know why. I think the Twilight Zone just kind of spooked me. But I know the episodes with William Shatner and the clown on the on the wing. Mm-hmm. And I know the one, I, I think I've seen the one where the guy wants to be left alone and read books and in the end, he's the only man left alive. And as he walks out of a library, he steps on his glasses. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I think that's why Twilight Zone was just like, oh, it's just sad stuff. <laughs> you know, I don't want that to happen. Those are the two episodes that come to my head. That's funny because I absolutely oh wait love oh wait that. the lady also was I think this was Twilight Zone the lady who the lady who had the surgery and there was people who looked like pigs, and they said she was horrible looking and she just looked like a regular person at the end. Um, Eye of the Beholder. Oh, is that what it's called? Eye of the Beholder. Okay. Yes, and I remember that because actually as an educator teaching language arts, I sometimes would use that episode to teach certain elements of like plot development. Because we never see the lady, right? Until the end. We think that she's disfigured and she's not. 
Well, we see her the whole time. She that actress oh. was actually from the Beverly Hillbillies. It was El, the girl who played Ella Mae Clampett. Really? Okay. Right. And we would see her, and she okay. was beautiful. But they kept telling oh, her no, something you're... was wrong. I can't remember which way it went. Maybe the pigs were the reveal. So in that episode, I can recall this now. Okay. Yes, she was wrapped, and we would see things through her perspective. That's what it was. And. Every time they would show the workers, the doctors, the nurses, they would always be in silhouette or their face would be... Or have a mask on me. Right. They would be turned or they okay. would somehow not be shown. Okay. And then at the very end when they unpeel her wrappings, mm-hmm. we find out she is beautiful by our standards, mm-hmm. but everyone in that society has like kind of pig snout mm-hmm. features. Mm-hmm. And so, and yes, that led into that theme that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Okay, gotcha. That's exactly right. And and sometimes another Twilight Zone episode that we used to teach was The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. What's that one? It's where we're in a small town USA and cars start starting and stopping by themselves, lawnmowers, lights go off and on, and the neighbors who were beautifully, you know, harmonious in, at the beginning start blaming each other. They start um, saying, oh, there must be aliens involved because this was kind of a, actually a statement on McCarthyism mm. and this whole idea of blaming each other. And so that they end up turning on each other to the point that they are literally taking sticks and chasing each other and Yikes. throwing, yes, and beating each other. And then the last shot is of an, a spaceship where two aliens say, really, that's all it takes. Just turn on a, a few lights, turn off a few lights, and just sit back and watch them destroy themselves. And the other one says, yep, it's that easy. Wow. So it was a great episode. But I think we're, we're, we're kind of digging in a little deeply there because the point of our episode today is really going to focus more on Twilight Zone, the movie, because that's where okay. our tragic accident occurred. Okay. But of course... That movie was based on the original Twilight Zone um, series, okay. which was Rod Serling's brainchild. Um, it was pretty famous, pretty well known. It ran from 1959 to 1964. That's a good run. It was a good run. And, and a lot of creativity on the part of Rod Serling. Mm-hmm. But in this movie in the 80s, they decided to take three classic episodes from the original Twilight Zone series and then also add a fourth one that would be original, something that they created, you know, then. And they also had kind of a little prologue and an epilogue that they tacked on. Is there a reason why on. they wanted to do this? Well, I mean, Steven Spielberg was involved as one of the co-producers. Oh, okay. We had some big names involved okay. with it, and they knew it would be a blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a lot of great actors, too. So it was just basically... I wonder why I don't remember this at all. I don't know that I actually saw it myself, hmm. so I'm not sure. But as I was doing the research, it was fascinating because I started pulling in a lot of things. The three remade episodes were called Kick the Can, It's a Good Life, and Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which is the one that you remember okay. where the fellow was on the airplane. The original storyline was called Time Out. Okay. And that's the one that we're actually going to be digging into okay. today. They had a different director in charge of each of those different segments. So they kind of worked independently, but then, of course, pull it all together for the movie, right? Yeah. In addition to Steven Spielberg, the director of this particular episode, Time Out, was also very famous. That was John Landis. Uh, He was the director who was known for the Blues Brothers and Animal House. Okay. And both of those movies had not been out that long before he was involved with this. So it was kind of in the height of his fame. um, Yeah, in his, his fame. Here's kind of a little synopsis of Time Out. This was a story about this bitter hateful man, very racist. The character's name is Bill Connor. 
Okay. And it starts with him sitting in a bar one evening, and he is just spewing these vile remarks because he's very angry. He he has his perception is that this Jewish coworker has stolen the promotion that he, of course, deserved. Mm-hmm. And so, in the course of talking, you know, about this man, his rant goes on to make terrible comments about not only Jewish people but also Black people and Asian people, and you just get a picture of this awful, awful fellow. A black man at the bar asks this character of Bill Connor to stop. He angrily walks outside, but instead of being outside the bar, he is actually in occupied France mm. during the time of the war and, and the Holocaust, and he is seen as a Jewish man oh. by those officers. Kind of like an episode of Quantum Leap. Except on steroids <laughs> because as he's escaping that situation he suddenly finds himself in the deep south in the 1940s where he is viewed as a black man by these kkk members Whoa. who are interacting with him and then he escapes that situation yeah. only to find himself in the jungle during vietnam where he is being pursued by u.s soldiers who see him as a vietnamese man oh, wow. and then he escapes that situation only to find himself back in occupied France where the Nazis put him on a train car heading off to a concentration camp. And it's, so it's a very dark. Yes. Yeah. Very serious episode. The actor playing this main character of Bill Connor was a fellow by the name of Vic Morrow, who I'm going to admit I'd never heard of before. I feel like I've heard that name, but I'm not sure. Well, when I started looking into it, I was surprised. He's, Actually, it's funny, I think you made a comment about this, like a reference to this, like earlier today. He's probably best known for his role in the Bad News Bears. Oh. So he must have been that grouchy character. It's been forever since I saw it. Bad News Bears. There was two versions of that. Walter Matthau and Tatum O'Neill, I think, did the movie. But there could have been a TV show, too. Maybe that was it. Yeah. He was also in a 60s TV series called Combat, which... I think ran for several years, so I think he he got some good press off that one. I opened up and looked at his IMDb credits. He was in a ton of things. He must Mm. have made appearances in, I don't know how many shows, everything from Charlie's Angels to Ironside. So he was really, I think, big through the 60s and 70s. He was also the father of Jennifer Jason Leigh. Okay. She's the actress who was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High Mm -hmm. and Single White Female. She was just in, was it The Hateful Eight? Was that the last thing she did with Quentin Tarantino? I never saw that. Okay. Well, at the time of this incident, um, Vic and Jennifer Jason Lee were actually estranged. Oh, father-daughter were estranged. Father-daughter were estranged. He was actually even even hurt. She had recently changed her name. She had dropped the Morrow, his last name, and changed it to Jennifer Jason Lee, picked up the Jason, which was actually in honor of Jason Robards, who was a family friend. Oh, Wow. I know. So, like, that was that ex- is a, extra hurtful. That is a deep knife wound. Right. At this time, 1982, again, he's estranged from his daughter. He is 53 years old. And um, he's actually kind of fallen a little bit out of popularity. So, he, Vic Morrow, was viewing this opportunity to have a leading role in this huge movie that they anticipated will be a blockbuster. Mm-hmm. You know, he is seeing this as his comeback. Mm-hmm. It's going to be his comeback role. So this was a big opportunity for him. The day of the accident was July 23rd, 1982, and it was the very last day of scheduled filming. The shoot was taking place at night on a set in Santa Clarita, California, and this scene was during that segment, the part of the the storyline that was set in Vietnam. Okay. 
And what was supposed to be shown here was this really chaotic, harrowing firefight in the middle of the Vietnamese War where the U.S. military was pursuing Vic's character, Bill Connor, mm -hmm. who, again, they saw as, as Vietnamese, but while he is also trying to carry two children. Ooh. Okay, so just to kind of paint the picture a little more clearly, it was super tricky to shoot because lots of chaos, very physically challenging. They had explosions going off. They wanted the helicopter to be very, very low because they wanted to kind of raise the suspense and really make this feel very dangerous to the audience. Wait, is the helicopter what's filming or the helicopter is in the sh in the shot? It's in the shot. Okay, gotcha. Okay. And when they, when they see him as these people, do we see him as the black person and the Jewish person? Do they change actors out or do we always just see him? He is the actor that remains in those scenes. I, to be honest, I did not go back and watch, okay. so I'm not sure how they... Let did you know. that, what their approach was, okay. but Vic is the actor that, that is shown throughout. Gotcha. I'm, I'm not sure if they sometimes flip perspectives yeah. or not, but at the moment that the filming is taking place, this helicopter, which is very low flying, is supposed to be chasing Vic's character, and he is actually supposed to be kind of like running through a river, This a, a, a very shallow part of it, so it's kind of wading, running. He's got these two Vietnamese children, one under each arm. And the children were played by child actors Renee Shin Chen, who was six years old, and Micah Din Lee, who was seven. And it said, which is sad, that, that Vic was actually reluctant about this scene. They reported that he was kind of standing over there to the side right before they started filming it, and he actually turned to a production assistant and kind of half-jokingly said, how did I let them talk me into doing this scene? I should have asked for a stunt double. Oh, no. I know. Yeah. The pilot of the helicopter was a man named Dorsey Wingo. He, in his interviews, made statements, and other people backed this up, that the director, John Landis, was adamant about wanting this helicopter to be very low, oh which made this a lot trickier. And that he literally kept screaming about, you know, directions to get it lower, keep it lower. And this is really what... I'm not liking what I'm... No, it's what led to um, the problem. And, of course, this is during a, a chase scene. But we also had the special effects. We had the explosions going off. So there was just so much going on. So what happened was Vic Morrow, he has those kids under his arms. He's running through the water when the pyrotechnics go off. Everyone agrees that the pilot was somehow this caused him to spin out of control. It was a little tricky to, to pin down exactly how it played out. Sources sometimes conflicted, but I believe that the, the consensus seemed to be that somehow the pyrotechnics, some of the debris hit the tail rotor, and that is what caused the copter, you know, it damaged the rotor, caused the copter to spin out of control, and it actually plummeted down towards those three actors. Did it's, it decapitate them? Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, it, With the way you said they're the little the little babies ages in a sad voice, I was like, Oh gosh, it's oh, three it's, people. It's horrible. It oh. is the most tragic thing. Um they said in one source that, that right beforehand Vic had actually dropped one of the uh -huh. kids and he was reaching down to grab that child. Uh -huh. And so when the copter hit them it decapitated him and one of the children oh. and then crushed the other oh, one. Oh babies. And it was instantaneous. I know oh. it's awful. It is awful. I could not believe as I was researching this. I'm like, how do I not know about this horrible thing yeah. that happened? They still released the movie. Yeah. The movie was released in the summer of 1983, and the story timeout was still included. It took a little bit of digging, but what I found out was they they left in 
the segment that took place in Vietnam, uh-huh. but they removed the kids entirely. Oh, good. They good. just took out any visuals, any reference to them. And then it said that they debated long and hard about what about, you know, Vic Morrow's part. And the director, John Landis, was quoted as saying, we decided it would be really outrageous to Vic Morrow if we just cut it out of the movie completely. They just felt like, actually, that it would honor him more. Kind of like what we talked about with Brandon. Exactly. Yeah. Meanwhile, although it was a process that took about five years, actually, I'm not sure if it was five years. I was going to say, that's what you said about the other one. Yeah, let's see. This was 1983. It would have been four years because it was 1987 before we got the results. So five people were charged with involuntary manslaughter. Wow. Um, Three of those people were the pilot, the special effects coordinator. The director? And John Landis, the director. And according to a 1987 New York Times article, it was the very first time a film director ever faced criminal charges for events that occurred during the making of the film. Well, he was the one that kept saying, go lower, go lower, and everybody was saying, that's not safe. Yeah, he took a lot of blame because yeah. people felt like it was I mean, obviously, pushing. he never thought that was going to happen. Right. Of course he didn't. But that's just, mm-hmm. that's bad. Well, and, and there's more to it because those kids were actually hired illegally. Oh, no. Um, according to safety regulations, the kids are not, at that time anyway, they were not supposed to be doing a, a night shoot. Oh. They were exceeding the number of hours that mm-hmm. they were supposed to work. Um, later, casting agents came back and said that no one had ever told them there would be danger. There would actually be pyrotechnics. There was only supposed to be loud noises. Oh. So there was a lot of finger pointing. And of course, there were civil lawsuits that were brought. Landis, the, the director John Landis, Warner Brothers, Steven Spielberg, were three of the people who, you know... Was Steven just because he was a producer? Because he was a co-producer, exactly. And and they all settled with those families of the three victims. I'm sure that it was millions. But an important result of the tragic accident was that it did lead to a lot of new safety standards for the use of choppers. And it also really raised... They tightened their child labor mm. standards as well. They, they made a point to really look into making sure that they followed And isn't followed it a shame this. that somebody has to die for that to happen? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, so sad. So that's actually the end of the first story. Okay. One tragic incident. But then I was going to move right into a different one. Okay. Which is the one that you you guessed, Steve Steve, Irwin. Steve, I remember Steve. I was so sad when I heard this news. I actually have his autograph. Do you really? How do you have his autograph? I wrote to him and asked for it. Of course you did. Well, who knows? I think it's his. It could be a stamp. But it's him (laughs) and Terry, and they're holding baby Bendy. Yeah. Who is now pregnant. Is she really? Yes. Oh, wow. I didn't hear that. I knew she got married. I saw on Facebook... I think it was yesterday, if not yesterday, the day before, where she was recreating the photo. They had the one from however many years ago, 1720, where Terry is standing there, very pregnant. Bindi and Steve are kissing her stomach. And so they had that shot side by side with this photo of Bindi, exact same pose, her husband's kissing her stomach. Oh, gosh, that family. And Terry just seems to, she just kind of is like, well, I had had love Mm -hmm. and I had my time. And she's not, as far as I know, she's never dated. She's not been interested in anybody else. And they were just this wild, unlikely, beautiful love story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What do you remember about his death? I remember that it was a stingray. And I remember that they had footage of it actually killing him. And I do believe that Terry didn't see it and they destroyed it mm-hmm. so that no one would ever see it. 
That's what that's my memory at least. Okay. And I don't actually know that. I know that there was talk. I saw an article where actually Steve's dad came out criticizing the cameraman who was with him, saying he shouldn't even be sharing details of it. So mm -hmm. I, I feel confident that is definitely an expectation that that film would never be shown. But I, I don't. I didn't read that they'd actually destroyed it. I'm pretty sure they did. Okay. Yeah. No. So that it could never be leaked right. or anything like that. Yeah. To go back to the very beginning, Steve was born on February 22nd, 1962. Close to ours. Right. In Melbourne, Australia. His dad was a plumber and his mom was a nurse. Mm. <laughs> but when his Steve was only eight years old, they decided to put all that behind him and pursue their dream to become active in animal preservation. So they moved the family to the Sunshine Coast in uh, the Queensland state in 1970, and they opened the Birwa Reptile and Fauna Park, mm. which was kind of this big reptile and wildlife preserve. And it's funny because I am sure that the people who knew them well were not at all surprised because I could not believe this. It mentioned a couple of different sources mentioned that Steve's parents gave him an 11-foot python for his sixth birthday. Of course. Of course. That's a very Steve gift. I'm like, what are you thinking? They weren't. <laughs> they weren't. And, of course, by nine, they, they would have had this wildlife preserve. But it said that by the age of nine, Steve had learned how to wrestle crocodiles. Mm -hmm. And he was very involved with learning how to, to run all aspects of this reptile park. Mm -hmm. Which, after it took a while, but eventually that, that park was renamed and it became the Australia Zoo, which is probably the term that we see yeah. a lot nowadays. So, in his 20s, Steve worked as a trapper for the government. And his job was to remove crocodiles from populated areas. So they definitely, you know, played on his strengths. And it was in October of 1991 that Steve took over the management of the zoo. And two days later... He met Terry? He met Terry. Oh, how Terry, did they meet? She was visiting the zoo. Oh, she was just a, like, visitor? Yes. Oh, that's so cute. Two days after he took over management. Oh I thought gosh. that was really cute. They were married in less than a year. And instead of a honeymoon, they went on a crocodile rescue mission where they filmed the project for a wildlife documentary. Terry, you're a remarkable woman. I know. <laughs> and it, it just kills me because the footage they shot on their honeymoon became the first episode of The Crocodile Hunter. Mm -mm. I know. I had, I had no idea about any either. of this. I used to watch The Crocodile Hunter. Did you? Yeah. I never did. I don't know if I saw their movie. Did you know they made a movie too? No. Yes. Was it a documentary type? I don't movie remember. Or? I don't know. Okay, so it wasn't. We're not talking a fictional plot where they. I don't remember. Oh, okay, I just. I think I have it on VHS somewhere, but I don't know that I ever watched it. Well, you know how I feel about snakes, so I, I don't think I was ever drawn to his particular style no, viewing any kind of show <laughs> where I was likely to see reptiles. Well, back all the then time. it was just the novelty of like, who is this crazy guy? Mm -hmm. Come on, that was what it was. Everybody was watching this crazy person who, and now people do that all the time. But I think he started all of that. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. It wasn't kind of novel back mm -hmm. then. And now and we've was... got the swamp people and mm -hmm. those guys. Yeah. Extreme is in. Mm -hmm. And he was always so happy about it, too. Oh, he was wonderful. Upbeat. Yeah. I'm not even going to pretend to do his accent, but it was just wonderful. <laughs> well, The Crocodile Hunter, of course, turned into a hit TV show, as you were saying, and it ran from 1997 to 2004, and they did numerous other film projects and documentaries, too. And according to one source, it was actually kind of a biography of, of Steve, so I, I, I trust it. It said that these programs have been seen now in 142 countries and by 500 million viewers worldwide. Man. 
Okay, so it says, Steve became famous not only for his fearless interactions with reptiles of all sorts, but other several unique features. What did he always wear, Ashley? He wore khaki pants, or khaki <laughs> shorts, and the khaki shirt, and the cute little socks, and the hiking boots. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And the phrase? Oh, Do you crikey. 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 You are good. Thank you. Yeah, and then the signature move, his big finale, they said, and again, not being the one who watched him all the time, I didn't really recall this, but it said that his sig signature move was after hunting down one of these big saltwater crocodiles, he would jump on its back, grab its jaws with his bare hands, and then tie its mouth shut with a rope. He'd just, like, squat, and then he'd <laughs> jump on him. So not long after Steve and Terry got married, of course, they, they were interested in having children. They had Bindi and Robert. And, of course, as they grew up, they became very involved with the zoo and mm -hmm. those projects, those shows as well. And it said that along the way, Steve not only gained a lot of fame, but he really kind of built himself a great reputation and earned some honors, mm -hmm. too. I saw so many things, but just to kind of name a few, it said that he was credited. I did not know this. He was credited with discovering, along with his dad, a new species of snapping turtles oh. in the early 1990s. Hmm. I did not know that. It's said that, of course, he was also admired for being such a passionate conservationist mm -hmm. and that he used some of his own money to buy tracts of land to turn into nature habitats. So cool. he, he put his money behind it. Yeah. And in 2001, Steve was awarded the Centenary Medal for a Lifetime of Service, which was an honor bestowed by the Australian government. That's cool. Yeah. Now, I feel like his accident has to be pretty soon because I think little baby Robert was not very old. Mm -hmm. He was an infant. You are right. He was, he was not, he wasn't an infant, but he was very young. Okay. In fact, there was one controversial incident that occurred with baby Robert. Didn't prior he like dangle him death. over something or I forget. What did he do? Now that you said that it triggered yeah. it, what did he do with him? Wasn't necessarily dangling, but um, in 2004, kind of put a little, ding in Steve's image there. What happened was he was holding Robert, who was one month old at the time, okay. in he one arm while he was feeding crocodiles oh, in a zoo pen. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah. And of course, huge public outcry. Yeah. They debated bringing some charges against him for, you know, but ultimately Steve insisted it was perfectly safe. He was in control the whole time and, and no charges were made that he had violated any safety regulations. Okay. Yeah. But you're you're right. His death was in 2006, so it, okay. Robert would have only been, what, two years old? Yeah. 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 It was September 4th, and Steve was eight days into filming a series called Ocean's Deadliest. Mm -hmm. He and his cameraman, Justin Lyons, were in the water near Queensland, Australia, when it happened. In fact, what it said was they were, of course, looking for the Ocean's Deadliest, and that particular day, Steve was hoping to find a tiger shark. But it said that the weather wasn't quite right. For whatever reason, they didn't have some of these deadly creatures around mm -hmm. that they were looking for. And it was kind of cute because in the interview, Justin Lyons was talking about how Steve had just had so much energy. And he was just so on the go that he could never kind of be still. And so when they realized they weren't going to get a tiger shark or whatever, you know, something that they could use for this project... Steve just suddenly said, well, come on, let's go. Let's go find something else because they were always filming different projects. Mm -hmm. So he, they got onto a, an inflatable raft or a boat, I should say. It'd be a better word. They got onto an inflatable boat and they went off to try to find footage for some other project. Mm -hmm. Just some B-roll. Yep. 
And so they went into the ocean and they came across this eight foot stingray, which they described as being exceptionally big. Mm. And this cameraman Lyons explained um, in an interview that it really wasn't concerning at all. Stingrays are normally very gentle, calm creatures. He said that if they don't want to be around you, they just swim away. Like there was really no fear here. Yeah. He commented they are also very fast. Okay. Yeah. Steve had Lyons, who, by the way, they had this whole history together. These two guys had worked together for like 15 years. So like they knew, Justin Lyons knew Steve's habits. He knew the kind of tape he liked. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, they worked very well together. So Steve had Justin Lyons film him with this stingray and they had quite a bit of footage. They were in chest deep water and then they took a pause. So they were standing. They were chest mm-hmm. deep so that means they were yes. okay okay yes so they kind of took a pause and they were talking through do we have what we need do we want anything else because they could have wrapped right then but they decided let's go back in for one mm. last cool. it's always that one I, last right i know gosh so they wanted to go back in for this one last shot and they were going to try to make it kind of this really cool to me it sounded kind of like a closure shot where they were going to have steve in the water the stingray kind of between you know him and the and the boat and then as Steve swam towards the camera the camera was going to then kind of follow the stingray as it just swims off and it was going to be like this beautiful little scene but the cameraman said that what happened was all of a sudden he saw the stingray prop itself up on its wings and just start to stab at Steve wildly with its tail he was quoted as saying it was hundreds of times within a few seconds. It oh was very, very fast. And so Justin Lyons said that at first he didn't register how bad it was. I mean, he saw that, that the stingray had kind of stabbed at Steve, but he said he had been very well trained by Steve. They had worked together for so long that Steve had made it a rule. If I get injured if, and if anything unexpected occurs, you are supposed to continue to film. And so Lyons finished recording he followed the stingray as it swam away and it was only when he swung back to look at steve that he saw that there was all this blood around oh, him oh gosh yeah it was described as like steve was standing in a pool of blood oh, gosh so was steve still standing up or yes. was he underwater no he was still standing okay yes and in fact it said that steve didn't really register how bad it was either oh, wow. he made some kind of comment uh, about the fact that i'm not sure if this is the direct quote but i think it was something like it's got me in the lungs so he thought he had a punctured lung. Yeah. But, of course, Lyons, with all this blood, now, you know, he's trying to get Steve back onto the raft or the boat, the inflatable boat, and they're trying to, to get them away. And it said there was one other, I think, team member who was there with them, too. Who Probably on the boat, on I the would boat. guess. Yeah. Exactly. And, and it said Steve was an incredible pain, and that was a huge cue, too. Besides the blood, they just knew something was wrong. really wrong here. Yeah. And in fact, one of the other documentary workers described, this is a quote, he had a two inch injury over his heart with blood and fluid coming out of it. And we had to get him back to the boat as fast as we could. They basically, I think, took him from this inflatable boat over to a motorboat. And then they were trying to race him to shore. They wanted to get the help of emergency workers. And in in one source it mentioned they were trying to get him to a helicopter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I'm sure that's where the, probably the emergency workers were. And it it said that Lyons kept trying to encourage Steve by telling him, you know, think of your wife, think of your kids, because he could tell it it was definitely very serious. Yeah. Yeah. And he said that Steve looked up at him very calmly and softly and said, I'm dying. And those were his last words. Oh. 
Oh, did yeah. he die right there? No, not right oh. then. They tried to perform CPR on him for, one source said, almost an hour. Oh. But at the same time, it, it was already too late because he was pronounced dead when they finally did reach emergency workers. Oh. And he was only 44. Oh, gosh. That just hurts. I don't know. Why. I mean, they all are... I'm not taking away from anyone's, but I guess maybe because I actually knew mm-hmm. and followed Steve. You like you had a relationship with him. Yeah, you do. You do. And it just... I just remember it really just... I don't know this fella, but it just hurt. And he was... It was so tragic, and he was doing what he loved to do. Mm-hmm. And you'd seen this love story between him and Terry, and the, he adored his children. It was just so sad. Yeah, very sad. And and you bring up that point about how tight their family was, mm-hmm. how much they all adored each other. The year after his death, on November 15th of 2007, of course, it was his family. It was, you know, within this Australia Zoo family that they started Steve Irwin Day. Mm. And it's happened every year since. It's a day honoring Steve Irwin and all of his passions, you know, his his different causes, supporting animal preservation. I bet Terry is a lot of that. I feel like when Terry entered the picture, that's when he became whatever it was that he was going to become. I almost feel like she was, I don't want to say the brains behind it, because obviously he was very smart, even though he kind of played this, you've not seen it, but he kind of played the silly one. Mm -hmm. And I feel like she was the voice of reason, Mm -hmm. and maybe she... I don't know anything about them, but I feel like maybe she was the one that helped with the publicity and had that that kind of mind where right. he was just the personality, but she was the one that kind of formulated the personality. It makes me think of Chip and Joanna Gaines. Yeah, like there you kind go. Of that same. Yeah, yeah. yeah Chip is kind of the the goofy, fun one, and she's the the voice of reason. And the one who's goal-oriented and, mm-hmm. and kind of more logistical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One one last thing was that in 2018, Steve was posthumously awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk Aww, of Fame. Oh, probably for the movie, because I don't think... Well, what are the what are the rules for that? That'd be interesting to look into. What do you have to... Because I think, wasn't Kim Kardashian, didn't she want one and they wouldn't give it to her? Because they said you can't have one just for being famous. Hmm. I don't you have know. to have actually done something. I have no idea what the rules are, but that would be interesting. Yeah, we'll have to look Because, up. I mean, he did so much film work, mm-hmm. but it wasn't... A film. Right. It wasn't a fictional movie. It was, it was documentary style or TV shows. Mm-hmm. One last little comment was just to, to clear up a myth. The camera operator again, Justin Lyons, who, who I think a lot is pulled from him because he was the eyewitness. Like right, he right. was the person that was right there. Right. But he said that a lot of people or a lot of news sources reported that it was pulling out the barb from the stingray. That killed That him. was what killed Steve. And he said, no, that that was not accurate. There was no like pulling out of a barb. It was just the fact that he basically got punctured in the yeah. heart. I Gosh. Mean, yeah. So That's horrible. just a, such a freak thing. It it's it goes with that when it's your time to go, it is your time to go. And it was clearly, unfortunately, his time to go. Right. Whew. Well, after those two stories, mm-hmm. you know, we like to kind of end with a little bit of armchair psychologist right a little armchair psychology something that's a little lighter where we get to weigh in with Mm -hmm. our opinions for whatever they may be worth which is very little (laughs) which is very little yes (laughs) but um, i thought i thought i would throw this question at you we just came out of these stories where we had steve Irwin who put himself in very dangerous situations and and where his cameraman continued filming even after he was hurt yes because they were trying to get a great shot or they were trying to tell a great engaging story for an audience. Mm-hmm. 
And then another story where we had a man and two children who died because they were trying, mm -hmm. the director was trying to get this great shot mm -hmm. of this harrowing scene with a helicopter that was very, you know, close to these actors. So the question I want to ask you, Ashley, is, you know, when you're trying to create great art, yes, what is that balance? Whose responsibility is it to make sure that the risk that's being taken is not overshadowing the safety, the, the safety people. of the people and the goal of creating great art. I would say it ultimately falls to the director, I would think. Like when, when you said that Steven Spielberg was part of the person being sued, I thought, why? He's, if he was just a producer, he's just the money. I would assume that he would have nothing to do with the day-to-day. In, in my mind, the day-to-day -day falls to the, to the director. So, all right, the director is in charge of what he wants or she wants, and then you should have consultants who say, the special effects consultant or, or whomever should say, okay, this is what you want, but that's not safe. But the director can still override them and say, I don't care. This is what I want. So it ultimately comes down to them. And unfortunately, in the case of Steve, he was the creator. He was his own director. So he said, this is what I want. And he told the, the fella, keep filming, even if I'm, if I'm ever injured, keep filming. Because he wanted that footage more than he valued his own life. Part of Steve's appeal and fascination. I don't know if it would be appeal. It would be more of the fascination because that seemed to be what Steve did. He was this wonderful family man who continually put himself in harm's way for the good of mm -hmm. the documentary or the footage. And like he said, you should be thinking of your family. You should. But Steve thought of the job mm -hmm. more, I think, than he thought of his family or he would not have, especially after getting the kids, he would not have been doing what he was doing. But by doing what he was doing, he was able to provide for his kids. So there's both sides of it. Mm -hmm. And thinking of it from my very, very limited perspective, anytime that I am in charge of a film or even in charge of sometimes in the stage stuff, if there is a stunt that has to be done, that's very simple. We don't need a stunt person. I'm just saying if I'm asking an actor to do a certain thing, I will do it first mm -hmm. to see how safe it is. I remember in... No Lost Cause, there was a scene where Beth Ann, I was asking Beth Ann, the character Beth Ann, uh, Caitlin, to pull herself up on a bed and do all of this. And I went through every action first mm -hmm. to say, is this, first of all, is it possible? Secondly, is it safe for her? Mm -hmm. But I tend to err on the side of caution. It's not worth it to me. Mm -hmm. The good, the good footage isn't worth people's safety. Right. As you were talking, it made me think the difference in the two stories, as you said, is that Steve chose. Yeah, Steve chose. He it. chose to put himself at risk because he wanted the the great story and the fame and and the mm -hmm. whatever it may be. So that was his own decision and mm -hmm. a lot of people make decisions like that all the time. Yeah. We have we have going back to the 70s again, we have everything from like those evil Knievel type people yeah. to current day extremists yeah. to people who just choose hobbies or, or careers that are more dangerous because yes. that's how they make money or that's how they're going to be successful. So that's, yep. that's a choice. Risk management. Right. But when I look at the example of the Twilight Zone, the movie, yeah. it sounded like those actors 
and and the other people they 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 managed to survive but that pilot could have been just as easily hurt as those actors mm-hmm. uh, i'm thinking but um in particular those actors who ended up tragically losing their lives they had no say this director right. kept pushing yes. lower lower that director did not allow people to offer some opinions about safety mm-hmm. He wanted the great shot. Yeah. They had no choice. They're the ones who suffered. Yeah, I don't I don't know if Vic Morrow had a choice. I mean, he certainly could have put his foot down and said, I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. It's unsafe. But who knows what the repercussions would have been. He would have, he would have lived. He would have kept his life. But would he have ever worked again? Who knows? So he was probably having to go, well, okay, fine. The little kids, of course, those little children had no choice. Right. No one was there for them. So they're the true victims in this case. I think that Vic... Vic made the choice to go out there seeing that helicopter. If if you saw a helicopter that low, I mean, surely they're going to set the shot up and they're going to say, here's where it's going to be. Did they tell him ahead of time? Or was the helicopter high up and then it just kept getting lower? There's a lot of facts we don't mm-hmm. know. Right. I feel like if I saw it, I would go, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not doing it. And then if I say no, then either you don't do it, you can't push me into a scene. But, who, again, we don't know what the repercussions would have been. There's a lot of pressure. Right. And if he was wanting this to be his comeback, there's more pressure to do whatever the director says so that he can have this comeback. Right. Now, it sounded like he could have chosen to step back and have a stuntman do it for him. But then the stuntman but probably then the would have died. Man would have and been either way, situation. those poor children exactly. are going. Right. So it still kind of comes back in my mind to the fact that in that situation, there was some blame, definite blame, on the director. I think so. Because there was some choice, but very limited on the part of the people involved. Yes. I wanted to share with you, to see if this sparks any any new thoughts, when I was doing the research on Twilight's in the movie, there was a section on the aftermath, and it talked about the fact that Steven Spielberg, as you've said, Mm co-producer, he and John Landis were friends prior, but this destroyed it. In fact, here, here's the quote taken from the source. Filmmaker Steven Spielberg co-produced the film with Landis, but he broke off friendship following the accident. Spielberg said the crash made me grow up a little more and left everyone who worked on the movie, quote, sick to the center of our souls. Mm -hmm. He added, here's the, the part that kind of speaks to what we've been discussing. No movie is worth dying for. Mm -hmm. I think people are standing up much more now than ever before to producers and directors who ask too much. If something isn't safe, it's the right and responsibility of every actor or crew member to yell cut. Yeah. That's great. Yes, I agree. I I agree with him completely. Yeah, I do too. I thought that was a a nice way to end this segment Mm -hmm. to think about... The fact that so many times we're pushed to do things that that we know are wrong or that we feel badly about, but just to recognize... Have, your, have that self-respect, mm-hmm. and it's not worth it. It's not worth your life. It's just not. Right. So cheers to Mr. Steve Irwin, Mr. Vic Morrow, and... Renee Shin Chin and Micah Dinley. Cheers. This episode of Scandal Water was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. All music was written, composed, 
performed and mixed by Josh Martin. The artwork was designed by Matt C. Adams. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.